to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Policy, and it's a great pleasure to uh, welcome Carol Rivers back to the Shorenstein Center. You've been here before, I, I know. Uh, Carol is a distinguished journalist and scholar and uh, teacher at Boston University's uh, School of Journalism. And her colleague and friend and partner for six books, I understand, uh, is Dr. Rosalind Chayat. Is that the? Chait. Barnett, um, who is the uh, senior scientist at the Women's Studies Research Center and executive director of its Community and Families and Work Program, although we discovered that uh, this bio is a little bit out of yeah, date. Yes, rather out of date. <laughs> so so what, what, is your, what is your distinguished title these days? I'm, I'm senior scientist okay. at the Women's Studies Research Center. At Brandeis. Yes. Um, Carol Rivers and, uh, and, and Dr. Barnett have made a specialty of uh, exploring the issue of gender, especially as it uh, is portrayed in the media. And this is something that is of uh, just as much importance right now, it seems to me, as it was 10 or 20 years ago. It has changed and evolved, but it is still something that's a genuine uh, issue of, of, you know, of great of great concern. Their new book is called Selling Anxiety, How the News Media Scare Women. Oh, this, is no, the, no. this is this one. This is out of date, too. Oh, oh. Mine's on day two. Uh, our universities uh, are wonderful. The new software on <laughs> soft war on women. Okay, their previous book was Selling Anxiety. Uh, well, the thing is, the books are all focused on the theme of the way the media portray issues that have to do with women and gender in general. Uh, the new book I will be eager to hear about, uh, and uh, so with that, let me turn the, the program over to the two of you. Great. Well, we thought that you folks would be particularly interested, since there's a lot of media mavens I know here, and one of the things that we found in, in our research on the new soft war on women is that the media is one of the big drivers of really bad science about women. And it is, um, what, what tends to happen is these stories remain in the, in the atmosphere. They're quickly debunked by social scientists, but they, they, they're, they're out there and, you know, time after time after time, they're just picked up uh, willy-nilly by media outlets. So at, fir at first glance, it seems like a wonderful time to be a woman. The time of empowerment and achievement, and a lot of stories about how women are achieving in the workplace and elsewhere. But if you look again more closely, as we'll do today, there's a different and a more ominous truth. We see uh, the research shows us, and we see new barriers and old biases that are ensnaring women as they try to move ahead in business, academia, science, and politics. In fact, the dramatic gains that women have made over the past 40 years is slowing. It's really quite startling how much women have uh, sort of gained in, the, in academia. They, women now earn the majority of degrees at all levels, uh, bachelor's, master's, and PhD in professional degrees. But when they get into the workplace, they're actually stalling out, and they're not getting to the top at anywhere near the rate one would have expected, given their education and early promise. So we're looking at a couple of media narratives. <clears throat> this is one. Women are soaring and taking over the world. And you hear this latest headline story, uh, new GM chief is a, is a woman. Uh, another recent story is Sheryl Sandberg. She's a, among the youngest women billionaires uh, for Forbes. Janet Yellen is at the Fed. So women are just taking over stuff. Well, guess what? It's not true. These are all fairly recent stories, and yet what you have not, was not reported almost nowhere, except in a few little business places, is that female representation on corporate boards has been flat for 10 years. So we're talking here about the untold stories. The told stories about you know, individual successes are, are widely understood and we all know them. But this is what we don't know, that there's been almost nothing going on for women below, below this top start level of, of success. In fact, women are flatlining in the boardroom. So Catalyst is a major research uh, uh, operation 
has been studying women's representation in boards for years, and they've been, women have been stuck at about 60% for 10 full years. Uh, the CEO of Catalyst, when she looked at these data, said, this is our fifth report where the annual change in female leadership remained flat. If this trend line represented a patient's pulse, she'd be dead, which is a widely quoted statement. I think it's very, very good. And here's an example how women start behind and never catch up. If you take a look at the, these, these are salary figures for women, uh, 1984, age 25 to 29. The, the gap in, in earnings salary is about 11,000. If you take, moving up, in, up the age range, when you get to 2004, people now are 45 to 49, and that gap is now 30, over $36,000. These are averages, of course, of college-educated men and women who are all employed full-time, full year. There's a very, very disheartening kind of, of a graph to take a look at because these people start out this, with the same credentials and they work the same number of years and the same number of hours and they fall further and further behind. And these are some of the big stories you've noticed, the end of men. Um, this story is absolute junk garbage story. And yet it winds up, you know, cover the Atlantic, um, uh, two big pieces in the Times, other places. We're still being cited. It is garbage. And we get to our Q&A, we can talk about how garbagey it, it actually is. Here's another absolute garbage story, the richer sex. There is no data for any of these stories. And again, reporters just fall for them all the time. They love them. So another media narrative, so we had women soaring. The second media narrative we're going to talk about today, although a lot more in it, a lot of them are in our book, that women can't have it all, and this is a famous cover in the Atlantic, this baby coming out of the mother's uh, briefcase. Uh, warning, of course, if women try, everybody suffers. And that is a, a theme which I'm sure a lot of you are quite familiar with. Here's a recent addition to the, the, the number of stories in this genre. So Wendy Davis have it all. This is an NY Times piece, February 12th. So Wendy Davis now uh, in Texas running for the Senate, uh, rather for governor, She's now being condemned. Why? Because she's not because of her policies or what she's actually done in office, but she's now being uh, vilified as a maternally de deficient careerist. Why? Because the argument is that she didn't spend enough time with her children. And her mother, her kids are 27 and 28. Yeah. And, and the kids have all said that she was a wonderful mother. And you know, so this, this is, but this is a story. Why? Because she went to Harvard Law School and didn't have her kids with her uh, full time. And the quote here is uh, from Jennifer Granholm. The persistence of a gender-based double standard is the oldest story in the book, and that is absolutely true. So along the same kind of line, there's many stories of the following kind. Men who marry achieving women will be miserable. It's very bad for you if you're a man to marry someone who's achieving. So one of the uh, titles in a Forbes article was, Don't Marry Career Women. How do women careers and mar marriage mix? Not well, say social scientists. Well, we'll see. And there's one more that we didn't put in, and that was, a few years back, Maureen Dowd had a headline on the men don't want to marry smart women. And feminism has, has said Dowd, feminism has sort of told us a bill of goods. And that was all over the place. We can talk later about what the specifics of those studies were, but this is the gist of it now. And here's one I'm sure you're all familiar with, the famous op-ed uh, cover story in the New York Times. Uh, women can't have it all. If they try, they're, gonna, they're bad mommies and unhappy women. So what are they going to do? They're going to opt out. Question on the, on the bottom of the page, why not women? get to the top, they choose not to. This is an incredible article for those of you who've read it. The, when you get you work your way through, you find none of this is true. Women is didn't, that the Lisa yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, yeah. Number, women did not opt out. Two, they, when, they were, when they took some time off, they fully intended to go back to their careers. So as you read through the article, she, she undoes her own thesis, but most people didn't get that far. They got to the front and the first couple of paragraphs, and that was the end. So the opt-out now has become part of our vernacular. We talk about as if it was a fact, all oh, the opt-out revolution. The story is, no, not so much. Oh. And, the, and the New York Times has women's ethics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But this was a long time ago. You can't blame her for this yeah, one. <laughs> uh, this is the granddaddy of them all stories. The um, women over 35 have more chance of getting killed by a terrorist than of marrying. That was a line in Sleepless in Seattle, if you remember. And in fact, uh, not a word of it is true. Yes. And this is the new one. Yeah. Does a more equal marriage mean less sex? And the, the idea of this, women whose husbands help out with household jobs have lousy sex. 
Wives are happier in bed with throwback males who think helping around the house is women's work so they don't do much of it. This is the big New York Times cover in their great tradition, unfortunately. Okay, so let's see. We now know what the narratives are. Let's hear a little bit about the background. So what does legitimate science tell us about these various media narratives? One, there never was an opt-out revolution. Women with uh, advanced degrees are by and large in the workforce, working full time. They're not going home to have babies. If they leave their job, it's for the same reason men leave their job, for more opportunities. Two, men are not unhappy if they marry career women. In fact, now um, the studies that have been done, the good studies, show that marital satisfaction is higher for men who are marrying career women. They, a, the household income is higher, and household income is a, it can be a source of anxiety if it's low. Um, these marriages are quite stable. Egalitarian marriages are good marriages, and such couples have good sex. There's a number of studies like this. Uh, now, this one, children of working mothers are as healthy and happy as children of stay-at-home mothers. One of the great guilt stories of all times is that women who uh, go to work and leave their children in daycare or whatever are abandoning them, rejecting them, and the children will suffer forever. Well, there was a book a couple of years ago called Ask the Children, written by a woman named Ellen Galinsky, who's president of the Families and Work Institute in New York. It's one of the few studies that, that just asked the children. She had a sample of kids, uh, I think they were 11, 11 to 13 or something like that, uh, and she found some very interesting stuff in there that um, children of at-home mothers are no, uh, no healthier than children of, of uh, women who work at home. There were no differences in any of the outcomes she looked at between those two groups of children. And she had other very interesting findings as well. We'll talk about them some. And high-achieving working women do not have more divorces. That's another big scare story. And they're so absorbed in their work and they have no time for anything, so they are going to be abandoning their marriages. It's not true. About, oh, this is yes. Okay. And then uh, in one of the earlier ones about you know women having as much chance of, of getting married at 35 as being killed by a terrorist. Well, 20 years after that article, the Newsweek apologized. We were wrong. There never was a marriage crisis for women over 35. But of course, at that point, the damage in a lot of ways had been done. And while it was clear that they refuted it, nevertheless, that's gone into the, the sort of mindset of people as well. So there's a big worry. Oh my God, what's going to happen to me? I'm single, I'm 35, I'll never find a husband. And one of the things we found in our research that female gender stereotypes are alive and well, it's not the in-your-face discrimination of years ago, it's gone sort of underground. And in fact, it can be more dangerous because women keep going out and they trip over these things. They don't even know they're there and they read all this stuff about how everything's wonderful women, uh, for women and men are losing and they don't realize it's not true, and the roadblocks are still in place. And here's one of them. This is, uh, this is interesting. Uh, it's the B word issue. Competent women are seen as bitchy. Competent men are seen as likable. So um, you see this happening, particularly with women who, who run for office, that um, you know, if you're, uh, look at Hillary Clinton, how many times she was called a bitch. Um, something like 50, according to the um, research we did. And here's another one where uh, silence is golden for women. Women, Talkative men are seen as powerful, and talkative women are seen as gabby and incompetent. And these are high-level women. This data it comes from Yale, and it's on CEOs in the U.S. Senate. So we'll just elaborate that a little further. In our culture, we think of power and gender is related. And what powerful people are expected to take, take a stand, to be aggressive and forceful. And that's really the way it works for men. But that same thing does not happen for women. When women are talkative, they're seen as, as incompetent, as less powerful, as not, not a, a leadership material. So we have a, a big twist in the standard notion of how things go together when it comes to women. And then we have another thing that men are promoted on promise, women are promoted on performance. And this data comes from Catalyst and from McKinsey. And what you find is a lot of people are wondering, how come some of these young male hotshots suddenly appear and go right up the ladder? And it's because of this. If you're a promising guy in many arenas, you have uh, a track that a woman doesn't have. The woman's got to sort of slog up and put in the time before she gets the promotion. Another wrinkle on this is when, when uh, people change jobs, what happens? When men change jobs, it often comes with a salary increase. They get a bump. But women change jobs, not so much. Why? Because they have to, they're in a new, new situation, they had to prove themselves again. They had to perform in a new environment. Their performance from the old one doesn't count. So again, men are promoted on promise, 
they bring that with them, they're rewarded. But not so much for women. They have to then come into a new arena and essentially not quite start all over again, but they don't get the bump that men get. These are all ways in which, these are aspects rather of a new soft war, a lot of ways in which you know, women are not prepared for what they're going to find in the world of work. A lot of it has to do with these subtle forms of discrimination. And our hope in this book is to, to make these more explicit so people can be forearmed and therefore able to deal with them better. In fact, we have a chapter on sort of strategies um, of how, how to anticipate some of these problems and, and then be proactive about them. And so maybe get, tell journalists don't fall for some of these stories because they're, they're wrong. Do a, do a lot better job rather than just throwing these headlines up and then um, having to apologize. They usually don't apologize, but apologize 20 years later for something that was never true and people knew it at the time. Just as an example, uh, when Maureen Dowd did that piece about um, marriage prospects for bright women being terrible, <coughs> she didn't mention, maybe didn't know, that the data that she was reporting on were many, many, many years old. What happened was that there were uh, research from four British universities studied women who were born in 1921 and looked at their, them in terms of their um, relationship between their IQ and their marriage prospects, or whether marital status actually. And they found that there was an inverse relationship. The brighter women were less likely to get married. And they just, you know, she spun that out to be a currently relevant story. If you think back to what happened in the, in the 1920s for bright women, the only careers that were available were not so great. Um, and the marriage was really, was even more deadly. They, if you were married when you were in those years, you couldn't have a career of whatever, any kind. So a lot of bright women chose not to be married because that was the, the end of life for them. And the current data show that educated women are more likely to marry than, than not as well educated women. So it's very much a reverse. But her story left out the context of the fact that those women were would have been 90 years old or 100 years old <laughs> at the time she was writing her piece, uh, which was a crucial piece of information. So we'd like to open it up to discussion. Let, let me, uh, I, is the boss here, I get to ask the first Absolutely. question. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, then we will open it up. Uh, I mean, the thing is that you're describing something that is pervasive and uh, widespread and is persisted. At the same time, it is this, those things have happened, especially in journalism, as in academia, women have ascended. And many of these stories, I suspect, were written by women. Some of them were. I mean, I guess my question is, what is the reason that, is it just lazy journalism? Is it something that has to do with a, uh, a, a, a persistence of, of, of just bad science being embraced by people who should know better, or is it something more pernicious? It's a lot about buzz. What we found is that when these kind of stories go up, they flash all across the internet, and, and the publication gets, gets a lot of buzz about it. There was a story about how the Forbes.com story about don't marry career women, there was worry at Forbes that the Forbes.com wasn't doing as well as it should, particularly among women. And so they said, okay, let's get the women riled up. And out came this story. And they did get a lot of buzz. They also got a lot of criticism. Finally, uh, um, Forbes himself finally apologized. But I think buzz has a lot to do with it. It's sexy. Um, you see this on the cover. People are going to pick it up. They're going to talk about it. I think that's one of the main things that's driving some of these kind of stories today. I think another piece is that... Story. Huh? I'm with Forbes magazine. Uh, oh. <laughs> I'm telling you, that was really horrendous. I couldn't believe that that guy wrote that particular story. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was awful. I apparently yeah. calculated. You think so? Is that, well, is that what you hear? The, the Times. I don't know about that, but. But the, actually, time, the Times did a story. Well, they did. It was sort of pot calling the kettle black in some cases, but they did a story about, about, about this, the, the business aspect of this, and it was their claim that the story was done for, for buzz reasons. I don't, I don't know about that. Uh, Russell, what were you saying? Yeah. One of the other things may be that uh, in our culture, the notion that, that, that of gender difference is so profound, you know, men are like this and women are like that, that, that to report a story like that, people immediately you know, say, oh, yeah, I, I agree with that. We did a book called Same Difference, uh, where the thesis of the book was uh, based on a huge amount of research. I mean, there's a huge amount of literature that the um, 
there's more difference between genders than there is no, more difference among genders than there is between genders. So women are more different among themselves than they are different on the average than men, for men. Well, that was a hard sell, and it's true. It's in fact true. Not everything, of course, but a lot of things. But the, the, the uh, story that goes along with the stereotype is much, and much easier, you know, easier to buy in and easier to sell than the, the, the actual story, which is that men and women are much more similar than they are different. Well, two of the, I mean, you've singled the New York Times out, and the New York Times, of course, the top editor is a woman who is, I think, I'm sure, considers herself to be a feminist and a serious journalist. The New York Times, in the last month or so, has published two articles that I would imagine, well, you, you re, you've mentioned both of them. Mm -hmm. One of them was the article about smart people, smart married people not having sex, right. or equal marriage not having sex, and the other was the mammogram study that was given prominent coverage on the front page of the New York Times. So what's going on there? I mean, you, you referred to it as junk science. The Times is not supposed to publish junk science. I know. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, did they... Did, I mean, the, the public editor is also a woman. Uh, what's going on here? Well, the worst stories do come out of the magazine. Um, and I again, I think Buzz may be at work. Um, this story, the latest cover story, that's a sexy story. Equal marriages, you got lousy sex. Who can resist a story like that? And the interesting, there was a study, but the, the study was, first of all, it said, their definition of lousy sex is that the guys who did the typically female chores um, had 1.5 fewer rolls in the hay per month than the guys who did the masculine chores. So this is, you know, is this, the, is this cold indifference versus raging lust? I don't think so. Um, and also, the design of the study was not good. Roz can yeah. talk about that a bit. What, if you want to do a study of, of um, say, sex and marriage, what you ideally want to do is have, have a couple, you know, his report and her report. They did not do that. They, well, they had the data, they didn't report it that way. They didn't analyze it that way. So what they did is they took all the men and all the women. So when he says he did um, more female chores, that's not, as his view, is that necessarily what he did? You don't have his wife corroborating. And the same with his report of sexual frequency. It's not each couple. It's, it's one person's report. Am I clear about that? And it's some data that my colleague and I did some, uh, years ago. We did a couple of studies of couples. And the unit of analysis was the couple, not all the men and all the women. And we found very different results. It sounds it's like it reminds me of that scene in Annie Hall mm -hmm. when the psychiatrists are interviewing Woody Allen and Diane <laughs> Keaton. Yeah. How often do you have sex? Never. Yeah. Right, never right, right. Sex. Always. It's yeah. constant. So that's why I think sound scientists don't do it that way. They'll want to, to ask both mm, members yeah. of a couple. Well, what do is very different. And in this particular article, <laughs> the, the writer did not cite several very well-known uh, studies, one by Janet Hyde, very well-known researcher who reports that the, in their big, big study, the best sex was between uh, couples in high-prestige jobs who got a lot of rewards from their jobs. So her, clearly her conclusion was that you know, high-prestige couples and good jobs have good sex. Well, let me, let me get to, the, to, the, to the, the fundamental theme that you're pushing here, that there is a, a soft war, mm -hmm. I mean, that there's an effort who is waging this war? I mean, is this, a, is this a, a war of incompetency, or is this something that is a calculated effort to wage war on women? No, it's, the, the sad thing is that these ideas are held equally by women as by men. So it's not so much that men are out there trying to put down women, it's that women are equally buying these ideas and applying them to themselves or applying them to situations they're in. So, in, in a way, that's kind of harder, because in the old days, when you went in and some guy said, I don't hire women, well, you knew what you had to fight. Now people don't say that, but things just sort of happen on the assumptions that, um, well, women really don't have it, they're not really leaders, um, and, but it's never said. The assumptions are still there, and women hold these ideas as well. I think our culture is so infused with these gendered stereotypes. They're part of the fabric, they're part of the air we breathe. We all share them. And it's really hard to root them out. I think if people are, became aware, uh, we have been some, some studies like this, 
you know, managers become aware, for example, that they're not promoting women at the same rate they're promoting men, they say, oh my God, am I really doing that? I don't mean to be doing that. They're not even aware. So part of it is becoming sensitive to the way in which these notions play out. And then that really becomes crucial to stand back and look at your behavior. And then you can possibly do something about it. But the TV, advertisement, children's books, you name it, these notions are everywhere. So it's really hard. We try. You know, people are trying. Uh, so it's, it's a long slog to make it uh, make a change. But I think with you know with with a book like this, and people start to, to think about how to become more positive about this. Then uh, maybe we'll have some some forward motion. Let, let me open it first to students uh, who are here. Yes, did you have a question? show examples from both ends of the spectrum, so clearly gender is being talked about in the media. Do you think that these conversations are helpful um, in that, I mean, these articles I'm sure spark your desire to write the book. In the long run, are these going to actually end up kind of reversing the trend against gender? No, because what seems to happen is when these really bad stories uh, appear, 10 years later they're still around. There was a study that showed in 1980 there was a story that there was a male math gene that women didn't have. Very quickly debunked. But 10 years later, researchers went back and did a study that mothers who had read that story 10 years ago still believed their daughters couldn't do math. So what happens is that these stories lodge, I mean, people, I heard a guy on, I think it was CNN, announcing the GM um, appointment saying, boy, women must be doing really great. And, and they're not. Um, and in fact, um, Columbia Journalism Review turned down our request to do a story on this. They didn't think it was a story that the media was reporting all these successes. And, and nobody was reporting the fact that women are sliding backwards in corporate boards, in top earners, in senior, senior uh, positions. You know, that's not a story. That's why we have the subtitle, How the Myth of Female Ascendance is Hurting Women, Men, and Our Economy. Because when, when women buy the story that women are succeeding, that the glass ceiling has been shattered, that the, you know, the, the future is wide open for them, they stop being worried. They stop you know, sort of talking to each other and finding out what the real story is. And they, if things don't work so well for them, they say, oh my God, what am I doing wrong? They run and take another course, they take a self-esteem thing, and they don't recognize that, they're, they're, this, yes, that some women are doing quite well, there's no doubt about that, and they, the line for women is, is improving. But for the most women, the, that story doesn't help them. In fact, there's some really interesting research about that, which I can go into privately if you're interested, but that when women, when they, when they see themselves, uh, that's one of the ways that Women's History Month can backfire, because when women focus on the gains they made over time, they say, Whew, you know, it's all done. Now we're just going to ride the coattails of this, this movement. And um, in fact, that's not what happens. You know, women need to have a lot of work to do, and they need to be mobilized by, by comparing where they are right now to men. So women still, 50 years after the first Equal Pay Act, are earning 77 cents to the dollar. There's almost no movement on uh, gender pay equity problems. Charles Blow, Blow had a very nice piece about that about two weeks ago. Now it's, just, it's just quite astonishing. So. I was going to ask about um, your problems, like having read the end of men's story in the Atlantic. I mean, I internalized this conclusion essentially that the service industry is growing to the extent there are gender differences. Generally, it's fields that traditionally had lots of women. Generally, to the extent there are gender differences, women seem to be thriving in the type of jobs that are going to be created in the new economy. They're getting the degrees now. Like, I internalized its conclusions as that. I was wondering if you'd speak more as to the problems with that article, and I think you got to it at the end of your um, answering that question, how it damages women, how it creates a false perception of. But I was wondering if you'd speak more specifically to the idea that the general trends of the economy are favoring women. Well, yeah, the end of men's story has no here. What happened was the author made this immense leap. The author said, because there are more women now in college classrooms, that means that women are now beginning to take over the kinds of jobs that will be the jobs of leaders of the country. Well, they're not. For one thing, uh, the, gap, the, the college gap was exaggerated. Among white college students, the gap between men and women is very, very, very small. What was happening is you're seeing a lot of non-traditional students come into colleges, so you're seeing a lot of 
um, uh, minority women coming in and occupying these. Uh, but um, a lot of these new people who are coming into colleges are in fields such as social work, teaching, uh, a lot of these other areas. And are they going to be the people who are going to be the Supreme Court justices and the corporate heads? Um, probably not. So this idea that this country is quickly becoming a matriarchy, in fact, in every industrial sector in this country, men make more than women. And in fact, there's a phenomenon called the glass escalator, which is that in female traditional jobs like nursing and social work, men are being promoted faster than women. They go up the glass escalator, um, and that equally qualified women don't move up as fast. So there is pretty much no basis to, to that story. It's just, it's just conjecture, a big headline based on um, basically no data, but just a, a, a huge leap, which just doesn't pan out. Yes, you and then. I wanted to follow up on what you said before about the obviously the importance of data and showing decision makers the key data. You know, if you're not promoting women, if you're not retaining women. Um, my background is I spent four years working on Wall Street and uh, in New York and, and then in finance in London, and I was very active in a lot of the gender equity initiatives. And it was something that our firm talked a lot about. Got key decision makers to look at the evidence, look at the numbers about who was getting promoted and who wasn't. Um, but at the end of the day, the constant roadblock that we hit was there's always this confirmation bias, and you'll get responses like, oh, but it's so hard to find qualified women, or you know, similar things like that. There's always some sort of rational basis in the minds of the decision makers that justifies why the data is the way it is. And they think it's deplorable, and they wish it was a different way, but there's always some sort of excuse. How do you suggest countering that? Well, one way is that a way that people, a lot of people are, are adopting. Instead of getting, letting the argument rest on gender uh, parity and fairness, it's a bottom line issue now. There's a, a number of studies that show that the more, the better the, we feel representation at the highest levels of the business, the more profitable the business is. Mm -hmm. So we're moving away from, oh, you know, the good thing to do is to be fair. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, we have in the book uh, some data from Australia that the data was so convincing to the Australians that uh, there was a relationship that I mentioned that the Australian equivalent of the SEC now requires that companies that are listed report the percent of women re representing uh, at the high levels. The argument being that investors will want to invest in those companies because they're more profitable. And of course, then the other thing that's happening in, in other countries is uh, institution of tar targets and quotas. Because there are women. That's not the problem anymore. You, what, that was a convincing argument before. But now when you have you know, uh, half of the uh, law school classes and about a third of business school classes that female, it's hard to make that argument that it's a pipeline issue. So I think other arguments are now taking place. We yeah. also see that the, the diversity quotas that most companies have, they pay no attention to them. They get, they get no support in the, the, the top C-suite. And down at the middle management level, only 17% of managers bother with these things. So they're basically wallpaper. They're useless. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about childbearing, child childrearing, and how you see it, and what maybe needs to be done in that area? Well, obviously, you know, women have the children. Um, so a couple things to be said about that. Um, in terms of policy, you want we there's certainly room to have more equitable childcare policies in this country. So right now, what happens is when women take child leave, they're penalized. Uh, it's so much so that. Uh, the, it's almost hard for women to make up the losses that they experience in terms of salary or opportunities for promotion if they take maternity leave. One way to make that better is to have, like we have in Sweden and elsewhere, have parental leave. So it's not women that are only penalized this way, but parents in general are expected to take parental leave. And then you level the playing field that way. Um, I'm not sure it's, it's perfectly uh, The interesting thing is that in, uh, uh, I guess it's in Finland, um, for men, it's you take it or you lose it. So one big issue about men taking parental leave is that they're, that's one area where they're punished. Usually it's women who get punished more. Men get punished more when they take parental leave because they say, oh, you're not serious. Um, but Finland realized that problem. They said, okay, we'll, we'll make it that you don't get it if you don't take it. 
So then everybody pretty much takes it, and some of that stigma goes away. In fact, the norm in some of these Scandinavian countries is that uh, men are expected to take parental leave. If they don't, they have to answer why. How come you're not taking parental leave? So it's changed the, di changed the dialogue completely. So there are things that, that can be done. Because I know there's a lot of research that says women don't disappear, but they go sideways into up, off the track. Yeah. Part-time always equals about you know, a huge yeah. decrease in lifetime earnings. Well, it's also true that they, become, they go into uh, self-employment. They just get out because That's they're not, they're not going to get back space, into. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to get back in uh, if you've taken time. And that, some people do, of course, but it's hard. But is, is that? I mean, that's my area of particular interest. Is that part of the answer of how you jump start the flat line? Is to find better ways of bringing qualified women at the middle level back in, so that you fill the pipeline at the top and not just promote from people who've always stayed in. Uh, absolutely, uh, our um, our child. You know, child care and child policy in this country are worse than most third world countries. I mean, we have no paid maternity leave, no paid paternity leave. I mean, you just go, you just go on, and we're like 37th or 40th in the world. Of you know, um, behind almost every country. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's crazy. And yet it, it doesn't change because our political issues here are so difficult. I'll say that I'll say, and I think it's been updated, although I don't have the data at my fingertips. Back a number of years ago, Deloitte and Touche, a major accounting firm, they just they discovered that a lot of the women were leaving before they got to be partner. So that from their point of view, it was a wasted investment. And they immediately assumed, oh, you know, children, they went home. And then someone said the bright idea to say, well, wait a minute, let's just find out what these women actually are doing. Yeah. Well, it turned out 90% of those women were not going home. They found better jobs. So Deloitte just, boing, you know, light bulb went off. They, they were losing women because they weren't creating opportunities for these women at Deloitte. Changed everything around. Well, those women are actually running the best run big sales in the country. Well, and they should be, those skills should be right. valued and brought so back. So what Deloitte did, and I think other firms, they now don't let these women go. When women come in, they are brought in close, and if they have children, they're kept engaged. Yeah, that's a good and a lot of companies are doing the same thing. They hold on. Yes, um, Yeah, I had two questions. First, it seems like a lot of these media narratives have to do with women's personal lives and the threat that having a career poses to that. But at the same time, within the professional world, they're seen negatively if they're competent, they are passed up for promotions. Does the media play a role in those perceptions in the workplace? Well, uh, uh, there are a number of stories that when women fail at work, big story, woman goes home, can't hack it, you know, can't, can't deal with the, the family and, and work. And that's uh, the number of stories we talk about in this book where we're saying difference, I can't remember now, uh, is that men never get that kind of coverage. When men leave us because, my God, you know, they have a better opportunity or a work environment or something. So, yes, there's definitely a perpetuation of, of issues like that. One thing that's really disturbing is that women at the Ivy are pulling back from the top leadership positions in the colleges, the ones that lead to the best internships and things like this. It got so bad that Princeton convened a conference saying, why is this? And you saw from the 1970s, the curve went like this in, in women who were in these top leadership positions. And the women were saying, the pressure is just, it's, it's too great. We have to be perfect, we have to be the best scholars, and we have to be hot, and you know, and, and um, so, so they, have to, they have to be perfect, not only in their scholarly lives at the top, but in their you know, personal lives and their love lives. They have to be just incredibly perfect, and they just feel incredible pressure. I mean, I think it's fair to note that probably one of the most influential you can't have it all voices at all has been Anne Marie Slaughter, who published a book declaring you can't have it all and going back. Of course, she then went out to take another job. But I mean, that that's kind of it was a kind of a bizarre moment, it would seem to me. Absolutely. That's first of all, story got a huge buzz. I'm sure you know that. But you know, her, so the story was she had she was a university professor at Princeton. Uh, with two children, had a huge academic career. So when she said she couldn't have it all, she had to go back to Princeton, you think... She was oh my, working for the Obama she was administration. Working, right, she right, had a, a policy position. And she had to move to Washington from her home in Princeton, and she had two children, one was having some difficulty. But that's a hard road for anybody to hoe, female or male, if you have your children at a distance. But the idea is you can't have it all. What, I mean, what does that possibly mean? That's a very overused phrase, of course, we've all heard it a million times. But if someone who's got... 
you know, is married to a very devoted man who's got two children, he's very attentive, and she's a university professorship. If that's not having it all, we might as well all forget it, you know? So yeah. it was very the packaging bizarre. of that story. I mean, in Marie Slaughter's story, she went through a lot of stuff about the difficulties for women, but it was packaged as I remember one of the taglines successful women either have to be super women or they have to have rich husbands. And women can't have, that's the way the story was packaged. But uh, what I think what Roz says is great. You know, if going back to Princeton to be a university professor with a six-figure salary, a happy marriage, and two kids is not having it all, um, you know, who came up with that headline? You know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Did you have a follow-up? Yeah, but so part B to my question was, what can we as people not doing Well, for one thing, not buy them. Question them. I think reporters need to to check. You know, and they they do follow up questions to ask where the data come from. When people throw out statements like women can't have it all, you know, well, where you know, really, what what are the data? Uh, what's the, what are you referring to? Just not take it. These things are repeated so often. They seem to have face validity, but the idea would be to question it. Now, who are you citing, and what's your source? So I think we need to do more of that. Other students with questions. Okay. Let me. Uh, I'm going to have to get some other folks in. So um, we're opening the floor to everyone now. If you have, yeah, Jill. Yeah, hi. Uh, this is really fascinating, and I, I wanted to go to the word buzz. Uh, it's such a you know contemporary feel to it, and um, I'm just interested in whether you know. Obviously, the problem persists, but if there is a difference in, let's say, 20 years ago, in the number of these stories compared to what's happening now, because there is that. Um, perverse, I think, trend in the media right now, which is to be, to have buzz, no matter what it is, just to be contrarian, just to say, okay, that's the, that's the given story, let's do it differently, and let's say it's all you know what. Um, and that creates buzz. So is the situation in the media with stories like this that are wrong uh, getting worse, or do you see more more stories like this? I, I think it is getting worse, and I see a lot of acceptance of. And here's the, the thing: is the big buzzy headline, etc., and then the story sort of backs off it all the way down, you know. But the the, the buzz stuff is still there, and um, I also find that people aren't bothering to go to. Uh, they're not reading the studies. They're not talking to social scientists. For example, the um, the richer sex story. Well, there was a statistic that said that 40% of women out earn their husbands. That caused all the the furor. But nobody asked social scientists who knew that this was only true among the lowest segment of earners. Only the only women who significantly out earned their husbands was in couples that earned less than twenty thousand uh, dollars. When it, when you came to you know more affluent people, it was a tiny tiny percent. It might have been ten percent of women who had earned their husbands, and yet it's a time cover. And so I, what I see happening is that um, places are going for the buzz and, and finding ways to not look at the real facts or put the real facts down in the last paragraph. And I, I think this is leading to a lot more of those kind of stories. I think you're right, though. I mean, the, the idea of a counter-narrative is so important to journalists to try to find, the, the, like the, all the guy who said that... Uh, Hillary Clinton's chances of becoming the nominee are like Dennis Rodman's becoming Secretary of State. Right. I mean, you know, that that is so stupid that uh, you know whatever. Anyway, uh, Anita, did you have a question? Uh, I guess so. <laughs> I thought you had your hand. Up, but... uh, I did. I did. And then I, I've been listening to the conversation, and I guess um, I'm a little concerned about. I just, I guess I'll, I have two, two things um, to say. One is now, I'm a, I'm a former journalist and I'm a blogger, but now I'm a communications consultant and I work uh, in the Cambridge Innovation Center and so I'm with like a ton of 20-somethings and they're all, most of them are entrepreneurs. And, uh, and I, uh, I also, um, I, you know, I wrote a book that came out almost a generation ago called Filthy, a little self-serving, <laughs> uh, Robin Patton's Professional Women and the Quest for a New Feminine Identity, which traces 
the sort of generational patterns of, um, of women. And I interviewed, I did these really in-depth interviews of women in the, of the set who, who broke into the male-dominated professions in the 70s and 80s. And, and most of them had mothers who had been at home in the 50s, but they had grandmothers who were working women. And so the book really traces um, uh, Broad's kind of spiral pattern of push-pulls, and it has to do with women and their mothers and their grandmothers, and you see these things reflected overall in the society in terms of historical change. And so being with these 20-somethings and having done a bunch of interviews recently for a new edition of college students and 20-something, it's a little, it's, um, I'm just wondering, you know, we're talking now about the uh, sort of big generalization, women, men, corporate life, but I, you know, I think those the pushes and pulls are still there, those stresses and, and strains, and I just it's just hard to um, sort of generalize. And I think having gone back through recently a lot of those studies that we're talking about the journalistic work, it's like it's very hard to get a grip on who we're exactly talking about. You can look at those numbers and things, but in these um, with these interviews that I've done with current college students, they're their experience is very different from ours. They're like one one young woman. She's her mother is from Philadelphia. She's American. She married an African guy, and the kid grew up in Africa. Unlike uh, my generation, her parents want her to go to medical school. She doesn't want to go to medical school. She wants to go into publishing. Her mother was a chemical engineer, and she's sort of reacting maybe the other way. She's like, I can't talk to my mother about this. I said, Why not? She's, because she just doesn't get women's issues. She, she's of a different era. I said, why is that? She said, she came up at a time when um, women just were expected to have these careers. She said, and then she said, of course, maybe she's just not that perceptive. Which well, I mean, what, what is, is there a generational kind of issue going on here? Uh, well, I, I'll just tell you one study, and <clears> then <throat> we can talk more. There's a woman named Kathleen Gerson, who's a sociologist at NYU. She's a really a very good a researcher. She did a book called The Unfinished Revolution, and she interviewed um, 150 whatever students, um, not just college age, but a little beyond. And it was an extremely well done piece of work, in my view. She, these kids, young people, uh, had came either from a single parent family or a two parent family where the mother stayed at home or a two, a two earner family. And she had two kinds of questions. She asked them what they wanted for themselves when they grew up, and then what they could do if they couldn't get what they wanted. Let's just start with the first question first. Almost without exception, regardless of how they were brought up, they wanted to be part of a two-earner family. Whether they were single, single mothers or stay-at-home mothers, they didn't want that. They wanted, they wanted to be in a two-earner family. So I think they were I mean, part of the, first of all, it's economically driven, in part. You know, it's very hard for single-earner fa uh, families to make it in this economy. And these people, they, they, uh, <coughs> they didn't put their mothers down for the choices, but they understood where they were coming from, they didn't want that at all. And then the interesting, other interesting thing, which is a little sort of by the way, if, if a woman <coughs> said they couldn't find a partner that wanted to share a dual earner life, then they would not ha get married. They would not give up their work in order to be married to a man who wasn't going to pull his weight in the house. They thought it was a very interesting thing. So I don't know exactly. Yes. Based on some of the things you've said, I'm getting the sense that women are just as talented men, but more gullible. And um, I guess I just, I was wondering how you react to three sort of basic, iconic, these are very general truths that we accept, or event, one event. Okay, so the truths are one, um, there are more divorce now, because you know you only have like 50% or less than 50% likelihood of staying married if you get married, because women have entered the workplace, they have more freedom, they have more choice. That's one. Two, men and women have a more uh, enter marriage on more equal footing, but still men don't do their share of the sort of home and childcare, and women feel somehow compelled or more responsible in that area. And then the third, the third thing is an event that I just wondered how you reacted to <coughs> the comments of Larry Summers a few years ago when he was the president of Harvard. I'd like to answer the question. Can I, Sorry? Can I answer that? Sure. Okay, let me start again all straight. First of all, the divorce rate is not higher than it was. It used to be, it's, it's leveling off. So that's not, it's not true. Where do you measure it? Well, if you just look at the, any, any of the data about. I mean, there's like 
post-World War II? Yeah, well, or just even recently, more recently than that. The first area is not increasing. And what was yeah. the other point you mentioned? Oh, yes. Well, if you take a look at what, what um, chores men are actually doing in the house and all, on weekdays and weekends, the, the, there's a line. How much, how much time men are spending and how much time women, they're actually converging. Men are doing more. So that's changing. It's changing. But this has been going on for a while. See, if you, you, can always find, you can always find an anecdote. You know, Joe doesn't do uh, the dishes. But if you take a look at large data sets, you don't find that men are actually doing more and they want to do more. So I, I, I think that it's, it is changing that way. And the Larry Summers quote, um, I think what he was looking at was he was thinking that there were some statistics that um, men were better at this sort of high tail, at, you know, the, that men were better at this really high, complicated math. And sort of that's what he was talking about. But since he made those statements, there's been a number of studies showing that that's absolutely not true. That um, well, that that was part of it, um, and there was some certainly there there was some truth to that part of it. But the the, the part that everybody objected to was his idea that somehow women are not inherently right. able to do this very high complex math, and. Um, in the last few years, there have been a number of studies that have just completely debunked that idea. Mm -hmm. Yes? No, um, I've just been struck, and I think I have the idea for your next book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Paper pencil, uh, please. By this hour-long conversation about, you know, that really encompasses people in this room, and the fact that we are hit every day by two things. One is the globalization of, of the world that no longer whatever problems we're having in this country are, are our own, whatever they are, right. whether it's women's issues or the economy or whatever. And then I'm also struck by the predominance, and all of us are aware of this, of the pictures of the paper, of the plight of women in Syria, the closing of the schools for women in Afghanistan and everything. And I think your next book needs to, to be that if this is a globalized world, are some of these issues going to be improved? For example, in China, where they still want to have boys, not girls. I don't think they're drowning the girls anymore, but I, I don't know. I mean, what's the data uh, when we're struck by the terrible rape in India? Now, that's one rape. I don't know how widespread that is. Yet, India is an emerging economy, and China the same. So what are the statistics? Are any of the... Is, is any of the... Um, advancement of women or the place of women or the equality of men and women coming out. Now we all know specific examples, for example in Africa, the marvelous women who have led uh, movements for example, the ecology of, of various countries, things like that. But, you know, when is this problem that we're having in the States going to hit the big wide world? Well, it's a, it's a huge question. So I think I know, and I don't mean to diminish no, what, no, no, what no, no, you're no, doing, no. but I'm just saying that the contrast yeah. where we're living in, you know, yeah. we know we're living in a globalized yeah. world. Well, there's a recent studies uh, reporting about women in India, uh, some entrepreneurs or high-level executives doing very, very well. But you have to get a big picture. I don't have that kind of a perspective. No, and I, and I, I think don't it's, suspect uh, that yeah, you do, right. but boy, there's a book there. Yeah. Sure. Well, I have a, a Indian and Chinese students, a lot of women, and they are very critical of what's happening in their own countries. And when I think when those women are probably going to go back to their own countries, I mean, you see now that the huge protest in India with both men and women coming out to, you know, to really protest what happened to this young woman. So I think as you see these women from all these countries getting more educated going back, they're going to start making a difference in what's happening in some of these countries. I did, how the rate of change, who knows, but they're, they're certainly, you know, they're, they're, they're very concerned. But then you see this, like this situation with the woman who wrote the the very distinguished book, I understand, on Hinduism, and Penguin is now withdrawing the book from yeah. India for publication mm -hmm. because of a lawsuit that was brought by right-wing Hindus who objected to her portrayal of the role of women in a Hindu wow. culture. Yeah. You, see, you see that? Well, the same thing that happened. But I mean, that was the, the courts of India that right. have now banned this book. Right. Well, fear of laws. I mean, look what happened when um, the cartoons of, um, uh, you know, of the prophet came out in uh, Scandinavia, um, and, and those were kind of threats of, of violence. 
a lot of those uh, publications were quickly, quickly withdrawn. I think the threat of force, the threat of lawsuits, is is really impinging on journalists, and that's very worrisome. Can I have one more comment? One more comment? Sure. One of the things that came up, incidentally, I just want to draw attention to it, our subtitle is how this myth is hurting women, men, and the economy. We think that where we are now and where we're going is the following, that because of uh, w w the role women play in our economy, that rather than seeing this as women, men are going to lose and women are going to win, a win-lose kind of you know, zero-sum game, for the first time maybe we're going to have men and women on the same page. So men wanting women to succeed, why? Because they're their wives, and they want them you know, for household, re economic, and other kind of reasons. Also because men are making the decisions in corporations, and they want their corporations to succeed, that we're going to have men and women both fighting for a fairness for women. And I think that that's going to make a big, if we get to that point where companies will make policies not just for women, the special women's problem, but for all employees, like the, like the health care or maternal leave, then we'll have a better, much better chance of getting on top of some of these things. And we'll, we'll have you know, sort of employee-wide policies rather than female-only policies. Other questions? Yes. So I was wondering what your opinion was on an article um, the Time magazine had on, um, it was called The Gods of Cooking, and it only mentioned male chefs in it. And so I was wondering your opinion on what 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 do you think of like the media just blatantly ignoring women altogether, and kind of why... Is this recent? I think it was in January. Because the editor of Time is a woman. Oh, yeah, and it was in time, and it was like the gods of cooking, and it was only featured 10 male chefs. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and mentioned. And so I just wanted to know your opinion on why some successful women are ignored and this impact. Especially in that area, which there are some but very successful But it hasn't women. been always the case. I mean, that the, the, the chefs have always been male. I mean, in my, my reading of all that, yeah, women may be, well, there's some exceptions, of course, but very few. Maybe you have a more comment on that. Women well, are cooks, uh, men are chefs. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think, that, I think that's right. Women cook the dinners and right. men do the chef. And it, 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 it shows that often when men enter what are considered female-dominated industries, they move up quicker because they're men. They are assumed to have more of what it takes, more leadership, more possess whatever. But they are moving up faster in female-dominated uh, arenas than women are. Yeah. I, it feels very discouraging, but I don't feel. But I don't feel that way. I just because I just have a. I mean, now so many more women are in professions and are doing things, and just you don't. College students um, they expect to have careers, and I just. I I don't want to leave feeling like nothing has changed. No. Well, I think that's not, it's certainly the case that things have changed positively. There's no doubt about that. We're not arguing that at all. We're saying to keep, to keep the momentum going, we would have to recognize they still have work to do. They just can't say, oh, well, you know, now we've got our right, PhD. Right, we don't want to backslide. No. That's, that's the real exactly. issue. Right. And it's very easy to, to do that, actually, to this, backslide. Is it, I have, this is, again, it's like you. I mean, this is one of the things I have heard. I didn't know whether it's true or not, that younger women are now less likely to identify, self-identify as feminists. Yes, it's true. It's true. Yes. I think part of I mean, this, this myth thing is, is only one piece of it. If women, going back to what we said earlier, if women think, oh, well, all the, the feminists won the battle. It's finished. I'll give you an example, by the way. Really, very, today's example. A, a close friend of mine is Professor Merida at, uh, in psychology at the uh, University of, of Alabama. Uh, and she, this is uh, Women's History Month, is March. And they've been spending a year developing a whole bunch of programs around Women's History Month, bringing Gloria Steinem in to talk, all the women's studies uh, teachers were getting the classes ready for this, reading her material and other people's. Well, last week, I think Thursday, they had a panel on what's happened for women in the last 50 years. Not one undergraduate woman turned up. Not one. In, in Alabama? Uh -huh. And t today, this is an Alabama girl. Well, she can, she'll she'll, she'll explain that. <laughs> t t today, today is the day that uh, uh, Gloria Steinman is going to come, and she's going to call me tonight and tell me how many undergraduates came to this talk. But I was appalled. She was absolutely appalled. And, and she, said, she thinks it's because women think that this is all yesterday's story. And there's some new research showing that when you, you take, you give a group of men and women, you, women read the stories about women's gains, and they have been put on rose-colored glass, everything's wonderful, the battle's all won. Men start to read about how well women are doing, and they start circling the wagons and saying, boy, they're doing great, we're failing, this isn't good. Um, 
Yeah, and to me, the next, I think of it as the Judd Apatow syndrome, which is that the guys are, when the guys become slackers, they somehow turn that into a virtue. You know? yeah, yeah. So that the women become, you know, kind of castrating, bossy, oh, yeah. hyper-organized, and the guys just want to be kids and, yeah. you know, screw up and everything. And they get the beautiful girls. Yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. And, and, and have everybody cleaning up after them. Yeah, right. I always tell my daughters who are in their early 20s, hey, guess what? I, I, I'd like to be a kid, too. You know, it's like, <laughs> nobody wants to be a grown-up. Yes. Exactly. You know? and, and, but you don't see the wonderful movies about these women who are kind of slackers. Well, and, and, then, and then you have Bridesmaids, which was the answer to that, which, right. was, which was so self-hating. Exactly. Women, you know, I'm, I am, yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry to say we're at the end of our time, but uh, thank you both for coming. It's very oh, interesting. Oh, thank you. It was great.